0: Welcome to this extended podcast edition of Straight Talk Wealth Radio, heard across America on broadcast stations and after the show podcasts, heard right here on the internet, with your experts in all aspects of retirement planning, wealth preservation, and income planning, guaranteed to last a lifetime. And now, your host of Straight Talk
1: Wealth, Bruce Whitey. Welcome to Straight Talk Wealth Radio. This is the extended podcast version. I'm Chuck, and the host of this great podcast, Bruce Whitey. This is awesome, Bruce. I love doing extended podcasts.
2: I love having the heat off and having the chance to really get into the issues we want to talk about in detail.
1: Great. Well, why don't you start by telling the audience who's listening right now what the, Straight talk, the Network of Straight Talk Wealth Advisors, who they are, and what it's all about.
2: Well, the purpose of Straight Talk Wealth Radio is really that um, we were born out of the crisis of 2008. Um, that was a game changer
1: for many, many people in the financial services. The you are kind of old to be born in two thousand eight. When well, the looking show at, was know, born, oh, yeah, see this is uh, the other cool thing we <laughs> can goof around can goof on around this show. Yeah, that's
2: right. Hey, so. But but the show was born out of that. Now, I had been in the financial services business, brought in the way everybody else was brought in. I was taught to do pie charts oh. and diversified portfolios of stocks and funds. And it was during the 1990s when you could throw a dart at a dartboard full of mutual funds. And wherever it landed, you were going to make money. And And the tech bubble should have been the writing on the wall. But, you know, we came back so hard in the credit and the housing bubble... But a lot of guys still figured you know that was a once in a lifetime hiccup, Crazy fool. and the world 's sunny again, and everything 's bright, but we came to find out particularly in hindsight how much false criminally criminally false criminally misleading things there were in terms of how people felt about our economy and investing in the markets that it really forced those of us that were conscientious and wanted to stay in this business to give a good, hard look at the basic principles we'd been trained on. So this show was really brought about because in my business, I changed gears. I had to go from, here's all the risk. I'm going to put you in this portfolio, but since I'm conscientious... Uh, I'll have to watch every day my computer screen, find out what's going up and down, get you out of something. I don't want to get you in trouble. And I'd like to tell you, you know, we there was the platitude that the stock market is your best long-term investment. Just wait it out. It's not the best long-term investment anymore. Crazy food. Where are we at 10, 12 years down the road, and we're back to where we were 10, 12 years ago? Maybe a little better. But the overall gains of that period were a waste of 10 or 12 years. Yeah! So who's to say what your best long-term investment is anymore? Because if we go another 10 years, then I guess my mistake as a consumer is I'm a fool to think 20 years, well that that's not long term. You should have been long term. You, you ain't doing 30 years, you're not long term, buddy. We, we seriously, I mean, the more I look at this, the more that I've had to go into economics and really taking responsibility for not just riding along on the, on the bus... Um, I think the next 10 years is going to make the last 10 years look like a picnic, or at oh, least no. it'll be about the same. But I don't see a lot of things on the horizon right now, which assure me that the, that we're going back to the 80s and 90s. I believe we're going to have continuing bubble after bubble. Now, I've done – go to our website, straighttalkwealth.com. There's more and more and more content where we're getting access to some of the best economists – Good hour-long interview, very insightful on our website. I did with Harry Dent in 2011, and you can agree or disagree with Harry Dent in terms of like you know the the volatility of his prognostications, but but you can't disagree, and nobody does disagree that our contracting demographics in this comp- country are going to have to have some effect. Everybody's talking about now. Ben Bernanke totally talks about demographics all the time. Now I heard him the other day on uh, c C-SPAN and I'm like going, um, I think he's taking his playbook from Harry Dent these days, which wasn't the case for a long time. So, um, our, our point is that the show talks about these things and where we've changed our values and the straight talk wealth network of advisors, the show airs. And I'm, don't mean to talk on and on, but I'm still I guess I'm still answering it's your question. That's what you're good at, Bruce. It's what you're good at. <laughs> I'm still answering your question. So um, the, the show airs. The show airs all over the country. Thank you. That's what I need you for. <laughs> so the show airs all over the country. So we've had to look at what happens when people call in. They want advice. They want help with their planning. I, I can't do it all. So we've gone through the country and 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 located advisors that get it about stock market risk and what we're saying is I'm not telling you to get out of the stock market. I'm not telling you to like completely remove yourself from the potential that maybe good times will come back and we'll see some great gains. We're just saying don't put all of your entire financial future, everything into events that you can't possibly predict or control. Why would you put your entire financial future at the mercy? So we sought out in our practice ways to guarantee returns. Where could we get the highest guarantees? And what we discovered is forget the banks. Besides the fact that today's show, which is about the banking crisis of 2008 and could it happen again. So besides the fact that we think the banking system's frail, it's certainly nowhere to get a return on your money. But you can separate your savings from your investments, investments meaning the money you want to continue to put at risk because you you, got a plan for it. You think you can make some good gains and you're willing to put that at risk versus the money that you're not willing to have at risk anymore. You've got to have that there or it is your lifestyle down the tubes if you lose that. That's your savings. And today, if you look at the long-term potential of what we call the pension-type markets, that are insured by the nation's biggest insurers that, that met all their promises in the midst of the Great Depression. When 10,000 banks failed, the industry that insures our pensions didn't skip a beat. They lost 31% of the money supply in the country dried up from nineteen thirty-eight to 1928 to 1936. That industry that backs our pensions lost six-tenths of one percent and kept all their promises. So we look at, we can go get six to 8% guarantees. Now there's certain restrictions that apply. So like, don't just blindly think we're giving away six to 8% all day long, every day. There's, they are definitely are available. They will compound, but they have certain restrictions. But given that, We then get these insurers to back this up. So if we have another crisis like the Great Depression, they should be able to meet those promises just like they did during the Great Depression. And that's the alternative that all of these advisors are grooved in on and they understand And So wherever you hear a broadcast radio around the country, if you're hearing it in your car and you call in, you're going to be working with an advisor who understands that basis of alternative retirement planning. And some of them are stockbrokers and some of them do do mutual funds and they do the pie charts as well. But we make sure they at least do the pension style planning, which is a guarantee of growth and a second guarantee. And this is in every case, what, we, what we're what we pushing on Straight Talk Wealth Radio is to build some sort of concept with two guarantees. One, it's going to grow. I don't care what the markets do. I don't care where the stock market's going, what goes on in the economy. This is going to grow. And two, when you begin to draw down on it, like a true pension, like the Bob Hope generation used to have. Because don't forget, you know, our parents, if they worked in the East Coast for Chrysler or one of the big industries, they had a pension. It didn't matter what their investments were doing. They worked there so many years, they're getting a check for X amount of dollars and it's lasting as long as they live.
1: Bruce, you mentioned Bob Hope. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. So you have this. You, you got have, a Bob Hope you, you, comment? I do I, do. I do. I do have Bob. It. We'll come right back to it, though. I get it. Um, so you got this whole network of advisors all throughout the country. Anybody listening to the show, that means there's a, a, an advisor right there in their area where they can meet and greet with, and talk to, and have this conversation with. Because one of the things you always say on the air is this: planning is not a static piles of paper. It's just not something they're going to read. Yeah, this is, this we is a very. We don't give out yeah. some
2: little. You know, uh, here's here's a bunch of charts, and here's the thing. It's like. When, when we engage in what we call a retirement roadmap, and by the way, I'm going to end this commercial off in about two minutes. We're going to get into the content of the day, which we can do on the podcast. Yeah. And at the end of this, we'll go into some solutions. But, you know, for those listening, they want to know who we are. I'm doing the commercial for now. We're going to get off of it in a minute. All right. Well, but but to answer your question, yeah, yeah, we have this retirement roadmap service, and it, it is a study and it is a fluid conversation about what you're trying to do and a tweaking of actual numbers on software that will open your eyes as to, if I do this today and this works, what would be the result tomorrow? If this unexpected event that we can plug in, let's call it a stress test, I'm going to lose 15% of my portfolio in the crash of 2016. What will it mean to the rest of my life? All of that is part of what we call a retirement roadmap service. I should give the phone number out to that once. And I promise I won't Uh, Let's give it once or twice. Okay. The number for that is...
1: Triple eight. I'll just it's triple eight 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 two five five seven eight. So it's a toll free number triple eight 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 two five five seven eight. And what's nice is even if you're listening to the extended uh, podcast, yep. you can call into that number. Uh, somebody will take your call, and they're going to schedule a time with you. Uh, so your local Straight Talk Wealth advisor can get in touch with you and, and go from there. Yeah, they
2: basically call you back. They ask you six basic questions to get a snapshot of your financial situation. It takes them about a week to get the study completed. And then they're going to deliver this fluid sort of study, which is a dialogue with you about, okay, under the circumstances of where you are now and what you're doing today, this is the dollar amounts you will have available to you upon retirement for X number of years. You want to plan on living the 80 85 90 I'll tell you what you can spend in retirement based on that, and then we look at other changes. What if inflation increases? What if you don't get the returns out of the portfolio? What if you get better returns? Better make sure that's so that's my the That is the first place we step off in any sort of recommendations with a client, because that's strategic planning and where most people go wrong is they are making tactical maneuvers and tactical decisions i want one of these i want one of those but they have no overall plan so they're making decisions in a vacuum that's what the retirement roadmap is and that's where we always start that is a 1500 hundred dollar financial service service, yeah Yeah, and we do that for no charge and no obligation when people
1: call and what is the number again it's triple eight 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 two five five seven eight triple eight 882-5578. But, Bruce, I also want to make sure anybody listening knows, and they've probably already found it if they're listening to the podcast, but straighttalkwealth.com is the website. You can sign up for the the newsletters. You can get uh, past shows, these extended podcasts there, plus the content you've been driving to that website right now is pretty incredible. I mean, everything you talk about on the show, you're getting extended content up there for reading, too.
2: As we speak, I actually have a lot of work to do this weekend on building that web page, but we are building a whole section on the website of, uh, about this
1: topic. So let's get into it. Well, Bruce, before you do that, you know, 10 years ago, we had Steve Jobs, Bob Hope, and Johnny Cash. Okay, Steve Jobs, Bob, Bob hope, hope, and Johnny, Johnny Cash. Ca- yeah. Now we have no jobs, no hope, and no cash. So let's get into the show. <laughs> oh,
2: their hope is just hope. Uh, what is it? Um, that was afflu- my Bob Hope joke. Affluence. Prosperity is just around the corner, Chuck. Okay. And it really is. And, and one of the things that we talk a lot about on the show is that And let me go back to the big picture. But today what we are going to talk about is an incredible... I want to talk about the big picture in a minute. But I do want to tell you today's show is about this incredible series that Bill Moyers has been putting on PBS. Go to BillMoyers.com. Really rich content website. Fascinating stuff. I'm so blown out to see a guy up there that is talking about the things that matter um, in, in our economy and what's happening. And he recently did... There's a lot of ways to approach this story. His approach was to go into what's called crony capitalism. And crony capitalism basically says that there's guys out there that are taking huge risks with all of us. They're blowing it. They're causing the taxpayer to lose billions and trillions of dollars. And their reward for that is, their punishment for it is to get a better job than they had before to actually wind up running
1: the government. Well, and that's something you're going to talk about. All these guys that created
2: this mess in 2008 are, are all in really cushy jobs today, and some of them are running the regulators that should have stopped them from making those moves in the first place. That's what crony capitalism is. And so you can get into this on a couple layers. One is you can get into the actual risk of the system, the frailty of the system, and what it means to savers and investors. And that's what I want to talk about. There is a political level to this issue, which is, who are these guys and why are they sitting in the, in, the, in the government position of regulating the regulators? And where's this corruption come from? And why aren't the regulators doing anything? And why did Dodd-Frank, the 1,500-page bill that was supposed to fix all this, why is it being called completely impotent? I mean, what is the big picture? So these guys, if you read and you follow the story from them, it's great because they do, in fact, go into, uh, really, the big picture of the political problem that Mm -hmm. we have. I want to go more into the systemic problem, the financial problem, and what it's going to mean to investors and savers. That's the story I want to tell, because that's the
1: field I work in. Sounds good, Bruce. Let's do it. And All just right. while you uh, while you get your thoughts together there for a second, so anybody listening, again, that number's 888-882-5578. You want to find out what you can do for yourself and how you can uh, you know br- break off your savings and save money for your future retirement, your pension planning, if you will. 888-882-5578. And uh, you know, one of the local network advisors, Straight Talk Wealth Advisors in your area will get in touch with you.
2: Yes. And if you go to uh, the website click on the blog you will find our entry on this under 2008 will it happen again or something like it was titled something like that so you can find that under the blog we're trying to get a little uh, uh attention getter on the front page too to let you know that page is underneath right um now i just want to talk in the big picture really quick just so you understand what what we're saying about overall effective things the the bottom line is we we love what harry dent says because it explains so much of the random events of the day and things happening And and the key thing you need to understand on this planet, or at least the United States, is the effect of the baby boom generation, which is about a third of the population of the United States. Now, if you have about a third of the population in one phase of who they are as consumers and producers, whatever's happening in your country is going to be largely dictated by that phase.
1: Such a huge chunk of people.
2: Yeah. Now, it's known that the average consumer doesn't get too much on our huge you know yeah young kids in their low in their 20s they buy computers and they buy iPhones and and they're great and and that's where we have a lot of our current demographics there is a second wave of the baby boomers the baby boomers were something like about 83 million of 300 million people in this country so when I was a kid young man Chuck (laughs) When I was a kid, I remember that a guy could get a truck and go down the street and collect dirty diapers and have a very viable business because everybody on the street had babies and diapers. Mm -hmm. My mom in Anaheim, California, told me. You're four years old and you're getting in my hair. Why don't you go knock on some doors in the neighborhood and find some kids to play with? And one, the neighborhood was safe enough I, you could do that. And
1: I've talked to Bruce's mom. She sounds just like that.
2: <laughs> my mom can't talk anymore. <laughs> but anyway, so, um, and, and, but it took me two houses and I found kids to play with my age. And, and I've talked to so many boomers out a similar, yeah, similar it's just experience. not that way today. I would so, never
1: send my kids out.
2: Yeah. You know. No, but 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 it was a preponderance of kids our age in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like I mean, in the neighborhood I live in today, you'd have to go through 10, maybe 15 homes to Mm -hmm. find young kids at a certain age. It's not that common. All right. So anyway, the point is uh, the point is, is that this was a huge effect now. When they're in their 20s, they're going to buy gadgets. And, and by the way, our children are in their early 20s to maybe early 30s mm-hmm. at, the, at the far upper end, lower end, getting into their 20s. Which yes. means
1: you're old enough to be my daddy, Bruce. Yes, that's right. All right, right. good. Now, good.
2: <laughs> take, out the, take out the rubbish, Chuck!
1: <laughs> so the point is that... Um, so these young guys are buying the gadgets. The they're widgets. buying the gadgets.
2: Yeah. And so yeah. Apple and all these other things, yes, there is, that is where economy is doing well right now. But in terms of home sales, they're not, they're not so much going out and buying homes. My generation, we were out at 18... And whether we had a blue-collar job, white-collar job, or going to school, pretty much by your late 20s, you were buying your first home.
1: You know, and that's an interesting statement because I know a lot of people in, in my age group, I don't even know what generation, I'm somewhere between that X and Y. X, Y, Z, Yeah, somewhere something like that. You know, a lot of them went out and bought those houses probably prematurely, and now they're back as renters. So Yeah, they're, unfortunately, they're, I mean, they bought look houses look
2: during yeah. the high point, and now yeah. they're underwater, and they've lost yeah. these houses. So we bought them at this period where, you know, uh, if, I, if I walked in a room of uh, people and of investors and I said, hey, I got great news, you guys. just want you to know a third of the country is about ready to buy their first home. Then they're going to have babies. And then when they have these babies, they're going to be consumers. Oh, my gosh. They're going to buy everything. So start building the DVD players. Start building the video cams. Start building those Dodge Caravans. Soccer moms. Look at all that's going to be coming and it's going to last for 20 years while they raise these kids. Therein lies the boom of the 80s and the 90s, okay? And, of course, we leverage into those things. Everybody does what's called leveraging in, which means they loan these people money or they invest in them. But what happens is when the good times are good and it hasn't been analyzed why they're good, then people turn around and they fail to see when the wheels turn. When the wheels start to come off. Now, Harry Dent is all about this in his books and his his uh, videos and all of that. He's always been about demographics. And what we're suffering from right now is we are mid in a little valley of bad demographics. The baby boomers are done spending. They're, their kids are out of the house. And, and if they're getting through college, all they want to do is pay down debt. And save money for retirement. And there is no stimulus that is going to bring the baby boomers back to being spenders like they were.
1: Well, and I think you talked on a past show, Bruce, when they when they threw out that stimulus package a year or two ago, the, the baby boom generation saved it and they paid off that's debt. Right. They didn't go spend it. That's exactly right. Yeah. So yeah. that's the first problem that we've had. Now the second problem
2: is that the that the leveraging into the boom was so massive. And that when a boom starts to tumble and fall a little bit, there'll be efforts to keep it alive, and those cause bigger bubbles. So when the government thinks no one should suffer, when the government thinks, oh, the economy's starting to teeter, instead of saying, yeah, duh, that's going to happen. And if you didn't get out in time, you're going to get hurt a little bit right now. They go, well, no one should get hurt. So they reinflate. What was a demographic bubble with low interest rates, easy credit, false economic stimuluses that create a new bubble. But now it's a serious bubble because it's one of government tampering and it goes nuts out of control. And that was the credit and banking bubble that happened after the tech bubble. And the tech bubble was kind of inflated anyway and should have bust out. But then you add, well, now that that's busted, we've got to save everybody. So let's make a new bubble. And then that happened. So now that was a bigger bubble and a bigger crash and a much deeper leveraging. And the government's now involved in the leveraging and involved in the debt of trying to deleverage out of it. So now you've got this, this huge leveraging, and that's even a bigger deleveraging out. And if that were to burst, people would, that were tied to that leveraging in in any way whatsoever would be desperately hurt. Our bank accounts, our pension funds, everybody who is buying collateralized debt obligations from the mortgage industry, everyone who bought real estate in an inflated, phony banking, banking, another bubble because the government didn't. The government pulled and you're going to hear in the show today how the government created the banking bubble. Okay, but the point is, all of that is now busting again and the government is coming back with a third bubble called we call the stimulus bubble. I'm going to explain to you. And David Stockman is going to explain the stimulus bubble to you. Uh, Harry Dent's going to explain the stimulus bubble to you today. We're in the third bubble, the stimulus bubble. The question is, I know it looks good today, and it looks like we're kind of coming out of it because unemployment's down a bit. Stock market's looking better than it was now. in 2008. And the ultimate question is, is this simply another bubble that that is the stimulus bubble that's been generated by the government? And is this one going to pop? Because- the theorists who say that the, that the bubbles are the problem will tell you that every time you create a new bubble to get out from the old bubble, the next burst will be bigger. bigger That's yeah. my concern. And again, philosophically, if you're a saver and investor during these times, my viewpoint is if you know when to get in and out of the bubbles, more power to you. I bow down to if thee. You've never been hurt, right? I bow down to thee. But most Americans are busy working the line at their company, building their small business. And they're just sitting there trying to save money. And they've been schnookered by Wall Street to putting all of their savings into investments. And if we have another tumble like 2008, my heart goes out to you. But I have to tell you, we told you so. And that's all we're saying in the show is take something. Take some of those winnings you've made, for crying out loud, get them off the table and create a pension for yourself that's not tied to what your investments are doing. You know, we have very wealthy people that call the show that have done good shots on their investments. They've called good shots. But they, what they want us to do is say, hey, Bruce, I just want to stop worrying about my investments and I don't want to get caught in the timing so let's build a pension based on guarantees. I realize it'll be more conservative. But let's build a pension for me where at least my bills are paid by the pension. My bills might be 10-15,000 a month, 20,000 a month, but I'll have the pension cover that and I'll take a chunk of my investments off the table to build that. But that'll still leave me a several million that I can invest. And I just don't have to worry about my timing or being good or bad or taking a hit or whatever. I can really be in it in the long run because I know your pension's always going to pay my bills. So even wealthy people still get the idea that, that this element is an important element. All right. Have I made my
1: piece? I think you've made your you piece, You want to give first... the number out just to yeah, if yeah. people want to find out about that strategy? That'd be good. It's 888-882-5578. Remember, when you call in, uh, you're going to leave your name and number. And uh, one of the locals to you, Straight Talk Wealth Advisors, will get back to you. And set up an appointment, 888-882-5578. And always don't forget the website, straighttalkwealth.com. All right. So all right. so this story of the
2: banking system, uh, there's a couple really great authors I want to turn you on to. First of all, I haven't had a chance to read David Stockman's uh, books about crony capitalism. But he wrote in 1985, uh, after leaving the Reagan administration, he wrote The Triumph of Politics. And it was a little bit of a mea culpa. It was a little bit of like, I, I wasn't right about everything. His new book that he's working on right now, so it might not even be out, is called The Triumph of Crony Capitalism. Now, what crony capitalism is and how it ties in the banking system, and by the way, the book I am reading right now is by New York Times columnist Gretchen Morganson, who has had uh, a good column. Eh, you know, she's called some good shots. Some of her stuff I really disagree with. But she's been very much all over uh, the financial system. And her current book is called Reckless Endangerment. And what's the subtext on this? How outsized ambition, greed, and corruption led to economic Armageddon. Now, this book is a fantastic study of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And the thing about those institutions were that they were set up by the government and I'm going to give you a little bit of the time track here, and then we'll go back through this. So they were set up by the government uh, to help finance the mortgage system. When the, They were actually set up during the Great Depression or afterwards when the banking system was so dry and the government had to get involved a little bit in banking somehow to free up money to create more loans to get people back into the homes. They created what's called GSEs, Government Sponsored Enterprises. Now, they're sort of a... <sighs> in this zone today between are they the government or are they a private company? Well, what they are is they're a private company that buys loans from banks or other lenders so that the other lenders can continue Free to up their
1: cash flow. Free up yeah. their cash flow. Lends more money.
2: But they can get money cheaper than any other any other institution. So they pretty much rule a major advantage, which is they get this government... Backing to get their money very, very cheap. Well, and the government insures them then against loss as well. So the government insures them against there. loss. Yeah. So that that is therein lies the the risk, which is and and let me draw a similar parallel. Let's talk about the FDIC for a minute. So what is the FDIC? The FDIC is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. It is an insurance corporation, but it's a government-run insurance company, and it collects dues from banks. But occasionally, it's not very well run. You see, most insurance companies, if they don't collect enough premiums and they have claims that are more than the premiums they've collected, they're dust. They're over. They're done with. They have to sell all their accounts to another insurance company that cleans them up for pennies on the dollar. To go pay their debt. The FDIC puts a gun to the taxpayer's head. It says, we blew it. We're billions of dollars short. As we were in the 80s and as we were in the 90s, And I have a whole report I wrote that has a great section on this, that my report is called Inflation or Deflation, America's Monetary System in Crisis, and how to plan for it. And if you go to the website and you look up our featured articles, you can actually order that report. But my point is just this, that um, the FDIC gives the appearance that your bank will always be fine. But, but, But the banking is a private institution. So you have to say who's monitoring the bank to make sure that they don't bust the FDIC. Because the fact of the matter is in 2008, when we had our banking bust, the FDIC was impotent, total limp noodle. It had nowhere near the resources. What should have happened is that the bank should have just gone bankrupt. They should have just closed. Congress had to bypass the FDIC to save the American public. And come up with seven hundred billion dollars on a bypass of the FDIC, and over three hundred banks took TARP money, the Troubled Assets
1: Relief Program.
2: So this was yeah, so just the, big. Just
1: the name of the TARP program was, was genius back then when it came up. I mean, if these are troubled assets. Why are you like? What was the sense in bailing all these banks We're out? We're going to buy them all out. Yeah,
2: yeah. So that just shows you that the FDIC system did two things: it instilled false security in the American public. And made us all think no one, nothing will ever happen to the banking system. And two, if you combine that with what the next thing I want to get into, which is the Glass-Steagall Act, if you combine that with the fact that we repealed the Glass-Steagall Act that was supposed to keep the banking system uh, morally correct, you now create what's called moral hazard, which is an invitation to be immoral. And investments, this is something that happens in the investment world. It's called moral hazard. Um, For example, uh, uh, you know, an insurance company, a life insurance company has to look at, um, you know, is there a reason this guy wants to murder his wife? (laughs) If they get too many insurance cases like that, they realize that they're underwriting bad moral hazard. That'd be one way of looking at it. Or, Or is there some financial advantage? Oh, here's another way of looking at it. Let's take uh, disability insurance. If your disability insurance pays you more than your job, it's going to invite moral hazard. It's going to invite immoral behavior of hurting yourself or leaving your job or false reporting because you're better off collecting insurance. So so liability insurance will always give you less than you would ever make at work just to try to lock out that moral hazard. So in the banking system, two things have occurred. One, one is that that you have these government-sponsored entities that finance and capitalize the banking system, and they're backed by the government. And so we all feel like, well, the government's backing it. It'll never go down. Let's talk about the Glass-Steagall Act. The Glass-Steagall Act was an act that And and in a minute, you're going to hear from David Stockman. I'm going to let him tell you a little bit more and and how this really put us, why it was so key. This was an act that Clinton and some others, uh, you know, and, and listen, I'm not political. I don't. The Republicans and the Democrats have plenty of blame to go back and forth. So when I talk about specific politicians, I'm not trying to step on anybody's political toes when or Bruce, pick a fight.
1: When Bruce goes to the polls, he puts two check boxes. That's all. I would just put none of the two above. Actions. That's <laughs> right what I write it. Right, in. <laughs>
2: none of the above. So anyway, but the point is, what Glass-Steagall was, it was an act that was uh, put together in the 1930s that said if. And this was Great Depression era. Great Depression era. So the problem with the 1930s is the banks were leveraged into the stock market. So you think your money's safe at the bank. But what they've been doing is they've been loaning money to investors on margin. Now, when they loan money on margin, that means we took their stocks as collateral, you see. So we'll loan you the money. But if you fail to pay, we're going to collect on your stocks. That's great. Until the stock markets crash and the stocks aren't worth toilet paper.
1: So the banks don't have the money because they lent it out. Those guys bought the stocks, so they don't have the money. The stocks crash. And the there's bank no coll- doesn't have collateral There's no anymore. money, no collateral.
2: Collapse goes the system. Run on the bank when everybody realizes this. And boom goes the economy. Boom goes jobs. Boom goes everything. The entire system freezes up.
1: And that's what that's what the Great Depression was all yep. about.
2: So now... Uh, now in the 19 in the two thousand eights, it was really the same thing but it was the real estate market the banks were into Well let's
1: get back to that. So go back to Glass-Steagall. So that was so a Glass-Steagall system Glass-Steagall set
2: up a system that said banks can only do this. They and and I, I'm saying only with maybe a little bit of uh, you know cush on the yeah, edges sure. here. But by and large a bank can take money in, hold it in place and make loans to people that it qualifies are good risks at lending and they hold those loans they hold them they didn't sell them away somewhere they hold them so that if they blow it and they're at risk then um they're the only ones yeah the bank will go down and no one will put deposits with them anymore yeah. and they're out of business and that banker by the way will never get another job <laughs> so he has personal risk in this mm-hmm. as well okay So that all being done, that's Glass-Steagall said, if you're going to be in investments or you're going to do something else, that's another industry. And let's call it another industry. Let's not. Banks don't do insurance. Banks don't do investments. Banks deposit money and loan money to underwritten risks. Now, one of the first things that happened before the repeal of Glass-Steagall is that uh, banks started experimenting in selling off loans. So now what happens is that bank doesn't hold that loan; they've sold it to a bunch of investors. Hmm. Now, that means they're not going to collect the interest on the loan anymore. The investors will. Well, they like that as long as those are good loans.
1: Well, because they got a little interest, they got their capital back. They can go do another loan, and it's, and all, it's all about off, fees. And it's off their book. Yeah, they got it's their fees, fees, fees. That's fees, where yeah. they make the money. So they made the money. They got their capital back. They're ready to go loan more money and make more fees, and somebody else carries the debt and the collateral.
2: Right. That's right. Now, add to that, that when things and this is what I you know, I have to this is something that governments have to learn. This is what individuals have to learn. And that is that when times are good, you think risk is gone. It just seems like risk goes into hibernation and we can forget about it. So during the 1990s, things were great. And you're and by the way, when you go and you watch the Bill Moyers report, you'll get the whole story of Glass-Steagall but basically what happened is that they um, they they yanked it. They said, "You know what? This is too restrictive on banks. Banks should be able to do other things. You well, know, banks can make more money and if banks can make more money, we could give better deals to consumers." So you're actually hurting the consumer by not letting us take certain risks, and really what was behind it was one merger that needed to remove this act in order to let that merger happen. And that was the merger between Travelers, which was an insurance group, and Citibank, that was a bank. They wanted to merge and have an empire, and they needed to get rid of Glass-Steagall to do it.
1: And they were successful.
2: They were successful. And uh, it, it's not typically something a, Democratic, a Democrat uh, administration would go in for, but Clinton signed off on it. Now, uh, let's look at the clips we have here, and I want to let David Stockman talk a little bit, uh, because his new book is The Triumph of Crony Capitalism. And I want him to talk a little bit about the impact of the repeal of Glass-Steagall and what that did in terms of bringing risk into the banking system. And by the way, where we're going with this is once you understand that Glass-Steagall put risk back in the banking system, and then you start to see the government marrying up and letting this orgy of crazy stuff happen, and and then you see the rest of this story becomes that the agencies that were taking government money to give the apparency of capitalization and everything was... I mean, this is going to be two podcasts, Chuck. There's no way we can put this even into an hour. But when you get into then the extra layer of the government supporting this speculation beyond making it legal, right, that's where you then generate what's called too big to fail. And then this moral hazard permeates the entire, entire global financial system. When times are good, of course, and it looked like there was no risk because everything's going the right way. And the minute it turns the other way, the entire global financial system has now is still feeling the pain of what we swept under the rug and the moral hazard we allowed to occur. So when we get done with this segment, I want to go back into Too Big to Fail and where that started to enter in, in the story of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac.
0: Speculation has gone too far. The His history has always been, and this is why we had
2: Glass-Steagall in a lot
0: of the legislation in the 1930s.
3: Glass-Steagall was the provision? The that, division
0: of banks between the commercial uh, banking and investment banking and insurance and
3: other. So that connect- you, the banker, could not take my deposits and gamble with them, right? That's
0: exactly right. And uh, we need uh, not only only a reinstitution of Glass-Steagall, but even a more serious limitation on banks. And what I mean by that is that if we want to have a way for, um, you know, average Americans to save money without taking big risks and be uh, not be worried about the failure of their banking institution, then there can be some narrow banks who do nothing except to take deposits, make long-term loans or short-term loans of a standard business variety without trading anything, without getting into all of these exotic derivative instruments, without putting huge uh, um, leverage on their balance sheet. And we need to say simply that if you're a bank and you want to have deposit insurance, which ultimately, you know, is backed up by the taxpayer. If, you want to, if you're a bank and you want to have access to the so-called discount window of the Fed, the emergency lending, then you can't be in trading at all. Now, on the other hand, if they want to be a hedge fund, then they've got to raise risk capital, and they have to take the consequences of their risks both to the good side and the bad side. And until we really approach that issue and dismantle these giant multi-trillion-dollar balance sheet uh, banks, uh, and separate uh, retail and deposit-insured banking from just financial uh, companies, we're going to have recurring bouts of what we had in 2008. And they haven't even begun to address that, and it's so disappointing to see that the Obama administration, which, you know in theory, should have had more uh, perspective on this than a Republican administration under Bush, to see that, one, they appointed in the key positions the same people who brought the problem in, Geithner and Summers and all of those. And secondly, that Obama did nothing about it. It could have easily, they could have um, begun to dismantle a couple of these lame inst- duck institutions. Citibank would have been a good place to start. But they did nothing. They passed Dodd Frank, which said, now we're going to have everybody write regulations, tens of thousands of pages. Uh, that, uh, you know, is a full employment act for accountants and lawyers and consultants and lobbyists. But they didn't go to the heart of the problem. If they're too big to fail, they're too big to exist. And let's start right with that proposition.
2: Okay, obviously, we have a lot of story to tell on this to kind of really uh, help everybody get their arms around it. But I want to jump real quick ahead of it, because I want to bring in Gretchen Morganson on this, who looked at one too-big-to-fail institution, or the major one, which is Fannie Mae. Uh, In essence, Fannie Mae got a $7 billion a year subsidy from the government. Now, when they go this route where they've got government backing and no restriction on their moral hazard, crazy stuff happens. James Johnson, who was the head of uh, Fannie Mae at the time, uh, she, she really, uh, she grills him. She really, I mean, grills not the word. She just, she nails him to a cross in this book. Okay. And one of the things that she accuses him of is that he spent a third of the government stipend, a third of the government's uh, supplement, not to lo- make loans more available, not to help um, better service. But to buy politicians and award bonuses to executives of Fannie Mae and to buy everybody he had to, his whole obsession was to make sure no one ever questioned Fannie Mae Now if you got a government he, it was a smart allocation of money by the way
1: really to keep smart. that to keep that business alive that's smart right. smart that sense not for the consumer no, but for him smart for him in the business.
2: yeah I mean if you're going to get a government if you're, you're going to have a huge mansion. And you're collecting multi million dollars, and that's your goal. And the government's giving you seven billion for crying out loud, pay some people off. Make sure your position is protected. And and that's what happened. Now, that's what her book's about. We're gonna talk more about that in a minute. I just want to jump ahead for a second because here's the message I want you to understand today. Okay, it's looking better. It looked great from oh two to oh seven. It is during these times when it looks like it's all fixed that is important to go in. And when you start building that skyscraper to the sky of wealth or whatever, that's a time to look at the foundation and see what are you building on before you just start building and building and building. So I'm a little concerned. I believe we have a stimulus bubble. I'm going to try to get into this. I really think we're going to do like an hour and a half podcast here, and we're going to have to come back and do another hour and a half podcast because there's no way we're going to get through this. Yeah. So much info. So, but I want to jump ahead real quick and just play for you what Gretchen Morgans said about, is it going to fail again? Because that's really what this is all coming down to. We could talk about history all day, but the question is, are we going to have another banking collapse? Well, and
1: like you just said, Bruce, as times seem to be looking better now, things are, you know, like you said, unemployment's coming down, the stock market seems to be doing a little better. This is the time when it's time to investigate to say, are we really safe, or is it just another, another bubble? You talk a lot about these bubbles. So
2: yeah, and I have on? a good Harry Dent quote about uh, how underwater the banks still are, too. We'll try to get
1: to that. All right, well, let's hear from Gretchen.
3: One of journalism's premier business reporters is with me now. Gretchen Morgenson won the Pulitzer Prize for her fearless expose's of Wall Street's dirty secrets and reckless behavior. In her fair game column for the New York Times, she digs into some of the most disturbing and complex scandals of our time. Her recent book with Joshua Rosner on crony capitalism at Fannie Mae is called Reckless Endangerment: How outsized ambition, greed, and corruption led to economic Armageddon. Welcome. Thanks, Bill. You just heard David Stockman say it could happen again. Do you think
4: it could happen again? It will happen again, and the unfortunate fact is we did not fix the problem. The Dodd-Frank legislation, which was supposed to be the fix-it for the enormous crisis that erupted in 2008, failed in so many ways to really address the major issues, the most important being too big to fail. Did virtually nothing to cut these big and impossible to manage banks. Down to size.
3: Listening to both David Stockman and you, after what we've been through since 2008, the millions of lost jobs, the millions of foreclosed homes, the people whose pensions have been shrunk, you both are saying not only can it happen again, but it will happen again. I mean, I have to tell you, it boggles my mind.
4: When I was living through it, watching it in terror, literally at my desk at the New York Times, because it really was on the precipice, there we were. I thought to myself, we will address this because this is so frightening and so scary and so damaging to this country. And I thought, we will address it because this is the big one. This is the big crisis that we've been leading up to. Long-term capital management didn't really destabilize the system. The internet bubble didn't really destabilize the system. This was the big one. And yet the response was so lame and so ineffectual that it absolutely will happen again.
2: All right, so that's a pretty scary statement. Now, uh, here's what I want to delve in a little bit further. Let me just try to map out the rest of the story here. So one thing I want to talk about now is how what she learned about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, how the merit... So we've talked about breaking down Glass-Steagall. We've talked about what the risk is today that nothing has changed. You heard both Stockman and... Um, Morganson say, it didn't get fixed. Both of them. Now, I want to go back to in Reckless Endangerment by Morganson, what she learned about how the government marriage of private, private, it's none of it, you're private, it's none of our business, go run your financial services institution like you will, you shouldn't, government shouldn't get involved in what the private industry is doing, however, the government is involved because we back it, we guarantee it, okay, okay. I want her to tell the story in a little more calm words about what she discovered when she did her research on this.
3: What did you learn about crony capitalism in doing reckless endangerment based upon the mortgage industry business?
4: What I learned was going back in time and examining Fannie Mae and as you know that's the company that doesn't make mortgages but it buys mortgages and it guarantees them. So it is a huge player. In this business. That was the really the quintessential crony capitalism, that company. They learned how to manipulate their regulator, to neutralize their regulator, to manipulate Congress, throw money around. They really told, almost showed Wall Street how to do it. They gave them a playbook. And what they did was they wrapped themselves in the American flag of home ownership so that they were impervious from any critics. Fannie Mae, who used its implicit government guarantee for its own purposes. It, it was able to borrow money at a far cheaper rate than in any other financial right. company and that subsidy, it took one third of that billions of dollars every year for itself. So it really taught Wall Street how to uh, be the quintessential, you know, crony capitalists, how to use your um, influence, how to use your money to um, buy protection for yourself on Capitol Hill and to manipulate the dialogue so that there were no critics, no criticism of what you do. This whole idea of this financial services industry having to be protected. Now of course we know that Fannie and Freddie are into the taxpayer for $150 billion and no end in sight. So we know how that movie ends and yet that is the practice and it continues.
1: So, Bruce, just as a dumb consumer, let's call me a dumb consumer for a minute. So, okay. so Fannie and Freddie are into the taxpayers for all this money. Uh, eventually, the government's going to have to stop pumping it full of money. And what happens?
2: Well, first of all, they're, they're selling. And they're and what they're doing, their parcel in trade is toxic for billions of dollars. So the whole industry that they're now trading in of these loans, you know, bad loans uh, for numerous reasons, either the way they're structured or, or the economy they're based on, or the fact that the loans are that made money so easy. See, the thing is, is you got to dig that the more Fannie Mae wrote loans, the more loans that happen in the country under, as she says, the flag of home ownership, the more they made. Now, when they if they make it so easy that anybody everywhere can
1: get a loan what happens to home prices they go up and up and up cuz you got so much demand to buy homes so. home prices go up and people can
2: get cheap money it just creates a bigger yeah. and a bigger and a bigger potential until come on $700,000 for a starter home something's got to give
1: well and you know you know it's funny just because i came out of the mortgage business bruce seeing that these loans were were set up so the consumer wasn't even covering the interest on the loan. Yeah. Negative amortization. Yeah. Who
2: cares because your house is always going to grow in value. Yeah.
1: So, as she says, we know how the story is going to end. Exactly. And that's what So, So, yeah, I mean, that was just, I wanted you to get that out. So, that's what you're here for because as, as the people listening to the show need to understand, is two thousand eight going to happen again now? Yeah, but see, it's all been fixed.
2: I mean, they were really smart. They got on top of this. It'll never happen again, and it's all stabilized and fixed now. And that ain't going to happen again,
1: right? Yeah, that's that's Bruce. Bruce that's a Bruce sarcasm right there. Should so we right. call it a brucism? Yes. So, <laughs> so that's let's Bruce-ism?
2: Let's go back to the Stockman Morganson clips, and I want to I want to look at what happened next. I might have one other clip here. Let me examine these for a sec. All right, here's a good one. Here's Stockman's quick story of what Congress did when the system collapsed and and what they did really instead of fixing it, which is recapitalize the banks and didn't change the system.
0: Um, When you look at what came out of uh, 2008, the only thing that came out of 2008 was a stabilization of these giant uh, Wall Street banks. Uh, Nothing came out of 2008 that really helped uh, Main Street. Nothing came out of 2008 that addressed our fundamental problems that we've lost a huge uh, swath of our middle-class jobs nothing came out of 208 that made financial discipline or fiscal discipline possible it was uh, justified as sort of expediency we need to do this we need to stop the contagion but it wasn't thought through as to what the long-term implications of this would be
2: okay so now what i want to tell you is what the immediate implications were because. This goes back to bubbles. Not only did we have a shrinking demographic and then the loosening of all the ties to allow allow really a reinflation of the bubble that should have just decreased because of the shrinking consumption demographic. We had incredible moral hazard going through the entire financial system, trying to Maybe just trying to reinflate it, just trying to get rich, whatever. It basically making phony money instead of real money. Okay. And then that now causes, so that's the fix. That's what they did. The Congress just moved in, billions of dollars moved in because that collapsed. Okay. Moved back in. Now, after 08 and 09, what you will now hear about is the stimulus bubble which Harry Dent calls the third and final bubble. We are still in the middle of the stimulus bubble. We're finally getting some relief because of QE2. The question is, where is all this going? Now, to understand how this is a stimulus bubble, I actually want to go to my interview with Harry Dent. And, 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 and what happened is this. And, and let's talk about what should have happened versus what did happen. So what happened is, is that, first of all, the banks get recapitalized. FDIC didn't recapitalize the depositors. They recapitalized the banks and said, carry on. Dig? It's like, bank, you should have been gone. You're gone. You bought a bunch of crap. Okay? But we're going to pay back the depositors because they're the American people. No. We'll give the money to the banks through $700 billion Act of Congress, and then we won't change anything. So then what happens is, They go, banks, what we expect you to do is to start lending this money. And the banks are going, you don't know the half of the liabilities we're still sitting on. We are not going to go lend this money out. We need this money, as do almost all the major corporations that are sitting on cash, because everybody's now worried that there's still more to go. So why would we lend ourselves to nothing to just have another collapse? We're going to sit on the cash, and we ain't lending it. We're going to put it in treasury bills. We're going to sit and just put it in the United States Treasury and get a good return. So in QE2, Quantitative Easing 2, what Bernanke said is, no, you're not. I'm going to buy all your Treasury bills from you. I got $600 billion right now, and banks, you need to sell me those Treasury bills. That'll make you loan the money. didn't make them loan the money. It made them put it in more speculative investments. And there you have the stimulus bubble. Stock market starts racing to the sky. On the, one of the worst economic outlooks we've got on not good anything foundational, but somehow this manic bubble getting reinflated. Let me play the Harry Dent clip. He can tell you a little bit more. I want to really quickly uh, read just the opening of the book to get into where we are now and where we are today in the crisis today that we're in. And this is called, uh, in the introduction, the economy on crack, the end of Keynesian economics. And Harry writes, imagine someone very close to you, someone who is part of your everyday life, and upon whom you depend is a drug addict. The person goes cold turkey one day and inevitably begins to suffer symptoms of withdrawal and detox. Along comes the drug dealer, and he begins throwing not just more drugs, but harder, more addictive drugs at this person. Do you chase away the drug dealer and nurse your friend through detox knowing that this is a difficult period but a necessary part of the process or do you welcome the drug dealer and actually cheer as more drugs are taken this might sound a bit outrageous but it is exactly what we are experiencing in our economy the patient quote or slash friend is the economy in which we all live the drugs are debt interest rates and printed money, and the drug dealers are the central bankers and the federal government. In a strange, perverse world, our markets are cheering as the patient is given more of what caused the illness in the first place. Let's talk about how the movement with qualitative and quantitative easing, how did that actually inflate the stock market? And Because le- we did a story on these two articles, side by side in the Wall Street Journal, that said, one, this recession will not let up. Recession is just stuck. Corporate profits, boom, in recession. And we have a stock market that had been going until recently. Boom, 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 with an economy going nowhere and unemployment going up. How did, the, how did technically quantitative easing cause a boom in the stock market and do nothing for the average person?
5: Well, I mean, tell you the truth, it was, it was a charade. The the normal theory is the Fed comes in, puts money into the system, either by lowering interest rate and easier borrowing by banks so they can borrow money from the Fed and lend or inject money like QE1. What's supposed to happen, the bank's supposed to get this money, lend it to consumers and businesses and get the economy going again. Well, The the problem is consumers and businesses are already way over borrowed. Consumers are now past their peak in spending. They want to save, not spend and borrow. So the stimulus didn't work. So the government sees this, and what they do is they keep saying, well, what we really got to do, the real intention was, we got to keep the banks from falling down like they did in the 1930s. So what they're really doing is giving over $2 trillion, QE1 and QE2, to the banks Mm -hmm. out of thin air. They create the money, give it to the banks. The banks take that money and reinvest at higher-yielding assets, which means stocks, commodities, so banks are literally they're speculating. investing reserves in stocks? Yes, they're speculating because they can't, well, it's not just banks. Pensions, retirees cannot live off of zero short-term interest rates and 2% long-term interest rates, which the Fed has intentionally pushed down. So rather than
2: loaning to consumers who don't want to be borrowing, the banks turn around and say, well, they're we can't keep it. this in Treasuries anymore because the Fed took it all away from us, so we're going to boom the stock market.
5: Well, they're just just saying we're going to make some yields on our investments to make up for our lending profits we used to have and what it ended up doing. Now, you take on top of that, some of these banks leverage it. Hedge funds leverage 30 to 50 to 1. Investment banks do the same thing. Notice they're still paying huge bonuses after the biggest bank failure since the 30s. They're paying huge bonuses, which said the government saved the banks, didn't help the consumers. Home prices aren't bouncing back. Homes aren't selling. Consumers, a lot of people are still underwater. Unemployment still near the 10% high at 9%. So for the everyday person, they have not seen a recovery. But for affluent baby boomers and for the banks, they're doing great. Yeah. So what the government did, it was kind of sinister in a way to me. What they really were doing was saying, we can't afford to have the banks fall flat on their face any more than AIG. So we're giving them $2 trillion to bail them out. But we're calling it stimulus for the consumer never went to the consumer all right but it did go in the stock market because these banks reinvest so stocks double in two years in the most risky environment i've ever seen that's crazy this bubble that that that's what we call this book the last one was the great depression this is the great crash head the the fed has created a bubble that has to burst it has to burst from its own extremes
2: we had the hardest time convincing people there was a stimulus bubble it was just government's made it all better.
5: You know, David Stockman, we've been saying this for a long time. David Stockman, the past budget director under Reagan, said the same thing on CNBC about a week or two ago. He said the government's pushing money in the banks and it's going is only inflating a bubble in stocks and stuff. And I'm like, thank God somebody said this. Yeah, it should be more
2: obvious than it is. OK, so there you have uh, Harry Dent actually referring back to David Stockman. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to play a Stockman clip where you can hear Stockman from a slightly different angle giving you the same story, which is that things got better because not that there was a foundation of future demographic and economic growth, but because banks weren't going to loan the money and they had a bunch of money, they they can play games with it. See, look, they played games with it, making loans, bad loans to begin with. And what were you just telling me that... You know, we'll, we'll 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 make sure that we hide the identity of those who are speaking. And I don't want to put you in any trouble. But what were you seeing in the banking system from your experience?
1: Well, what I was—I'm saying, not sure where you're going with that, Bruce. You said mean, what I was—what I was saying was the uh, the hud hudback mortgages. Is that?
2: You were talking off mic about they're still making weird loans, oh yeah,
1: yeah, I mean well, they're not making weird loans, but the lending has definitely gotten a little easier, and you know seventeen percent of, of mortgages as of two thousand and ten were still defaulting in the first six months and so in the first six months six months of that new loan So that's still not defaulting. like the old
2: thing happening that's new things happening this is
1: new, this is new, and this is after all the tightening wow. and whatnot so i mean those are those are scary numbers. I think one in one in five new homeowners are are still still, still failing within six months of buying their new home right. So that's scary. Th- let's hear Stockman
2: talk about banks speculating and inflating the stock market. What do you
3: mean by the free money that banks are using uh, overnight?
2: Well, by that we mean when the Fed,
0: uh, Federal Reserve uh, sets the so-called uh, federal funds rate at 10 basis points where it is today, That more or less guarantees banks can go into the Fed window, the discount window, and borrow at 10 basis points. And then you take that money and you buy a government bond that is yielding 2 percent or 3 percent or buy some corporate bonds that are yielding 5 percent. Or if you want to really get aggressive, buy some Australian dollars that have been going up or buy some cotton futures. Um, And this is really what has been going on in our markets. The cheap funding, which is guaranteed by the Fed, the investment of that cheap funding into speculative assets and then pocketing the spread and you can make huge amounts of money as long as the music doesn't stop and when the music stops then all of a sudden the cheap overnight money dries up this is what's happening in europe today this is what happened in 2008. and then people are stuck with all of these risky assets and they can't fund them they owe cash to the people they borrowed uh overnight from or uh, on a weekly basis that's what creates the so-called contagion, that's what creates the downward spiral. Now unless we let those burn out uh, it'll be done over and over. In other words if, uh, you know, if, they, if a lesson isn't learned then the uh, error will be repeated over and over.
2: I just have to say in short if you've been listening to any of our other shows too one thing we talked about is ultimately I don't, I'm trying to make a long story short here But ultimately, what the government should have done is should have said, you know what, banks, the the real estate market. See, what they've done is they recapitalize the banks and everybody's sitting there with the same toxic liabilities, hoping that, well, maybe the real estate market will come back and it will equal these bad loans that the banks did. They don't want to admit we're out the money. What they need to do is they need to, the government should have said, we will assist you on a dollar for dollar or some ratioed basis that if you take this homeowner now who has a $200,000 house and a $400,000 mortgage, let's not operate on the basis that the real estate market's coming back. Let's operate on the basis that the real estate market has adjusted correctly and write his loan down. Get this debt out from under him because if he walks away from it, it's only going to get worse. So we'll assist you to the degree that you assist people that are upside down. Would have been the correct way. the The debt needs to wash. That's the bottom
1: line. If the debt washes, then you're shaking your head. Just make sure we're on radio. Go, you go. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> well, that's what I'm. I'm shaking my head. Yeah, because I, I had a conversation with somebody who was a part of of the uh, Obama administration helping to write some of these programs that were designed to help homeowners get out of this debt and help the banks get out of the debt. And it, it was it it was, it was designed to fail from his mouth. The whole right? system was designed because to Because it fail. was
2: still based on the fact that we're hoping the real estate market yeah, will come back yeah. rather than telling the bank, F you, it ain't coming back. Give the money up and we'll help you with that. Because if you had the whole country start to readjust its debt levels to its real asset levels... Maybe some consumption and spending would come back, but you're trying to stimulate. Uh, you're trying to stimulate an, an American economy where everybody owes more than they than they have. You know what I mean? Yeah, they, yeah. They're upside down. So
1: well, uh, that that's back. the
2: ultimate solution, and we've covered that on other podcasts. I don't want to go too
1: into that, but I just want to mention that's that's the solution, that's solution for sure. You know, Bruce, I, I'm thinking this is probably a a good time right now to wrap back around and. And give the listener right now the idea of of why you're here, and, and obviously we've you've gone through all these clips, and 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 we've talked about how 2008 could fail again because the problem isn't fixed. I think that's clear in, in what we've talked about today. Let's
2: do that. Let's talk about how to fit what you should be doing personally. Okay. Then I think what I want to wrap up with is what is the current liability? How on the edge is the current system? And how certain it is that we will see another collapse? And then we're going to wrap it up.
1: Well, let's do that. Yeah, we'll talk about how certain it is and, and why it's still a you know, why it's still on edge. Yeah, let's I do talk that. About what to do? Let's do that, and then we'll end on what to do, so everybody can walk away with a little smile on their face.
2: All right, good. Yeah, at least. Yeah, yeah I want to bring a smile to people. Yeah. because there is a way. There's at listen, the the whole my guys didn't lose. If you had followed me in the last ten years, I'm not looking for followers, but I'm just trying to help people.
1: Well, it's the fact, Bruce. I think that's a good point to say that too. What What is your? You, you know, what were with is your group me. You on? remember yeah.
2: what did I say in the height of the real estate bubble? What was I doing seminars on?
1: How to preserve your capital? How to get your capital get a out capital of the house, house and, and keep preserve it. it? Keep it. Did
2: I tell people to put it in the stock market? No. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't have been any better.
1: Did you tell them to go buy more real estate? No. No. What did I say? That's I say, what everybody was doing. we
2: at, at the. I oh, know they were.
1: That's what. It, take all the money out of your house and go buy more real estate. Take your money out of your house and put it in the stock market. No, you went. You went a very different, very I say, different. Get route. it
2: out right now because the market's going to oh. crash. Put it somewhere where it cannot be lost. Um, I'm worried about the banks. I'm worried about the stock markets. We're going to keep it out of both Gosh, of percent. those. And those people that did that still have all the equity that they had built up plus gains since whatever that was, 2005 <laughs> and six, that we were yeah. campaigning yeah.
1: that. Yeah, it's been a while. That dates back quite a ways now, if you think about it.
2: Did did any of my people lose money no, in the stock market lost. crash? No, they haven't lost. No. All right.
5: so Or be, the real estate crash, that for that matter. That
2: being said, I'm not trying to be Mr. Right about everything, but uh, there, we do have some solutions. And that's what's cool. I guess the point is, I'm not saying this all to be doom and gloom. We did not, our clients did not suffer this. And I, I feel it's a very important mission to get people to understand uh, the methodologies that we've been employing that are relevant to the economies. Cause you know what? I have the same fears you guys have. I'm in the same boat. I'm middle America. I worked in the nonprofit sector during drug rehab and literacy till I was in my early forties. And then I have a disabled son who's 26 years old. He's about the level of a three year old. He's a sweet kid. We love him to death. He's a great kid. We have no, no, uh, we're, there's no, uh, you know, he's wonderful to be with and life is great. But he, I need to plan for two retirements, and it shifted my priorities. So I'm very late. I'm not a get-rich-quick guy. I'm just like, I just don't want to lose what I've built up. That's always been my focus. So I'm building, I'm trying to build a strong business. I'm trying to save my money. And I'm more concerned about making good, predictable returns than I am about Get Rich Quick. And that is the road that led everybody to so much disaster over the years is jumping on the Get Rich Quick bandwagons. One after another, that just the wheels came off of those bandwagons, and I think before people, they got far down the road, people were
1: so blinded by how easy the money was to Bruce. My dad and I had a conversation oh, yeah. about this. I mean, every, even the smartest, some of the smartest, you know, wisest, most conservative people out there, just they got caught up in this money thing, and and nobody really saw the writing on the wall. When they, were, when they were in the midst of it, even though it was there the whole time.
2: Yeah. So let's go back to today's topic, which is the banking system, and let's talk about uh, the wow. current liability, where we are, and is there, is there really any trouble in the banking system today? Now, there's
5: another couple of factors we're looking at. There's 4 million foreclosures in the pipeline, two already in process, another 2 million seriously delinquent coming into the process in the near term. 4 million foreclosures. Banks have been holding back these foreclosures in the last few years. Number one, because they don't want to kill an already weak market. Number two, they've been hoping that the Fed would turn around the economy, home prices would come back, and they could sell these foreclosures later at higher prices and not have to write off all their bad loans. This is clearly not happening. One of the clear warning signals here we've been pointing to for a long time with the lowest mortgage rates in modern history. And with the strongest stimulus program ever in the U.S. and around the world, home prices are still edging down. They're now slightly lower than they were at the bottom of the economy in mid-2009. If, all, if 200,000 in jobs in December and all this stimulus and low mortgage rates cannot get home prices to come up, what will? And if we go into a slowdown or banks are forced because of their need for cash flow to dump more foreclosures on the market, which I think they're going to have to do and already starting to do, home prices go down, the banks are in trouble, the economy's in trouble. So again, we see this as a critical time. We we think the economy's going to slow. A few months from now, start to slow. By the time the Fed finally reacts with a QE3, say sometime in the second quarter, by the time it hits, it's going to be too late from our view with, with Europe melting down. Hey,
2: um, I want to come back to uh, the current risk, but, uh, you know, I just discovered there was a clip I really want to play of a short clip of uh, David Stockman talking about what they did in um, when they fixed it and some of the hazard they left behind. You know, the
0: Congress gave them a blank check. Not at
2: first, don't you remember? Congress first
3: refused to approve the
2: bailout,
0: right? And, and then, then the stock market dropped 600 points because uh, all of the speculators on Wall Street all of a sudden began to think, hey, they might let capitalism work. They might let the f- rules of free, uh, the free market uh, function. You mean so by letting was, them fail? Yes. If, but it would have been a big lesson to the speculators that you're not going to be propped up and bailed out. You're not going to have the Fed as your friend. You're not going to have the Treasury with a lifeline. You're going to have to answer to the marketplace. And until we get that discipline back into our financial system, the banks are just going to continue to grow, continue to speculate, and find new ways uh, to make easy money uh, at the expense of the system.
2: Okay, so that was good. That was kind of a look back and a look forward. And uh, since we're on a roll here, now I want to play Gretchen Morgenson's clip on what she learned from the crisis and where she's kind of uh, doing a look back, look forward here.
3: Since you've been covering capitalism, business and finance, what's been the biggest change you've seen?
4: Previously, I believe that bankers that presided over this kind of a train wreck um, would have wandered away from the scene tail between their legs, uh, ashamed, or the regulators would have cleaned house, fired the management, um, clawed back their compensation. We've seen none of that in 2008. Did the U.S. government replace any of these managements? No. Did the U.S. government claw back any of the money that these people made when the boom was going on, which we now all know was a phony, boom and so therefore that was phony money that they earned during those years. We also didn't have a penalty. There were no penalties paid except by the innocent taxpayers. There were no penalties paid by the people who, who um, created the crisis. Yeah, I read in
3: one of your columns not too long ago that, uh, that if, if a CEO is indicted, uh, the penalties he may have to pay or even the cost of his lawyer,
4: he doesn't pay. The director's and officer's insurance often pays for these costs. The company many, many times pays for these costs. Angelo Mozillo is a perfect example. The former chief executive co-founder of Countrywide, one of the most toxic lenders out there, really has created huge problems for especially minorities in this country. He um, was charged with insider trading by the SEC. They settled the case. He didn't admit or deny guilt. All he paid was $22.5 million to uh, civil penalties in the case. He sold stock worth more than $500 million over a period of years at the end of the boom. We are talking about a cost of doing business, something that he has no trouble paying. He happily wrote that check. All right, so uh,
2: there you go. Uh, that's crony capitalism at its finest. So um, real quick, I want to just uh, wrap this up in terms of How let Stockman, I'm going to go back to a clip on Stockman where he's asked, can we turn this ship around? Is there a way to get this ship off of the path it's on towards the next iceberg? And then I want to just talk about what you guys can do and what we do that has avoided all of this trouble for our clients. And it's just a different look at it. We're not investors. We're not trying to work your portfolio. Investments have risks and I'm done with that world in terms of, trying to manage clients. Now there's some great game players and I'm not telling you that if you're a smart guy you can get in and out on time, but our show is about the average working person who is trying to save money and doesn't have time to figure out when the next bullet is coming from behind the brush.
1: Well Bruce, you've always you've always said, always told your clientele and our listeners that it's not about taking over their investments. You know, Keep your investments. Keep doing yeah. that. We're talking about the savings, what you're going to retire on, what's going to be there for your future that you absolutely can't risk. To, Like you said, you know, preserve what you've already got.
2: Yep. That's exactly what we're talking about. All right, let's but hear that but clip. we're going to teach you some new stuff. But anyway, let's hear this final clip, and then let's talk about solutions.
3: This is a serious situation, is it not?
0: I think it is, and... Um, but we also have to recognize the pessimism that the public reflects in the in the surveys and polls is warranted. In other words, the public isn't being unduly pessimistic. It's not been overcome with some uh, kind of false wave of emotion. No, I think the American public sees very clearly that the current system isn't working. That uh, the Federal Reserve is basically working in behalf of Wall Street, not Main Street. That Congress is owned, lock, stock, and barrel by one after another after another special interest. And they logically say, how can we expect, uh, you know, uh, anything good to come out of this kind of process that seems to be getting uh, worse? So um, how do we turn that around? Uh, I think it's going to take, unfortunately, a real crisis before maybe the decks can be cleared. What would that look like? It will take something even more traumatic.
3: than we had in September 2008. But on the basis of the record, the lessons of the past, the experience you have just recounted and are writing about, do you see any early signs that we might turn the ship from the iceberg?
0: No. I think we've learned no lessons. We really have not restructured our financial system. The big banks that existed then that were too big to fail are even bigger now. The top six banks then had $7 trillion of assets. Now they have 9 or $10 trillion. Rather than uh, go to the fundamentals, uh, which um, have been totally neglected, uh, we've simply kind of papered over the current system and continued the game of having the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, if necessary, prop up all of this, uh, all of this uh, leverage and speculation, which isn't helping the economy. And, and when we talk about zero interest rates, that's not helping Main Street. Our problem in this economy is not our interest rates are too high. The zero interest rates are just more fuel for uh, leverage speculation, for what's called the carry trade, and uh, that is uh, causing uh, windfall benefits to a few but it's leaving the fundamental problems of our economy um, in worse shape than they've ever been.
1: All right, Bruce. I've been sitting here with you for an hour and 18 minutes just dying to ask you, and I want our listeners to know. 1830, one Okay, thanks, thanks. See, <laughs> see, Bruce is always right on top of it. Uh, what what do people do about this? I mean, right. uh, obviously, the, this is scary. This is just scary. I sit here and listen to it, and it's, it's scary. You know, what's going to happen? The,
2: the reason so, it's scary is because the banking system is 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 a bleed over between what we've been talking about, which is your savings and investings. Let me recap that just in case you're entering late. I don't know how you would do that on a podcast, but in case you came to the show late.
1: You, you're hopping in somebody's <laughs> car. You just closed the car. And already this, is playing. The this is already on. playing in the
2: car. Yeah. So the point is that what we talk about is the difference between saving and investing. Investing would be the money that you're willing to have at risk. That's where you want to get great growth, but you also realize it may either not grow, it may contract, you may lose it, or it may be down when you needed it and you're going to have to wait several more years. My contention is, why do you put why would you put your entire financial future into such events that you can neither predict or control. And when there's so much going on behind the scenes, as you've heard today, that should convince you even further that you really can't predict it and control it. We've got a government and some cronies in the back rooms that are manipulating this stuff, and you're probably not as in control as you think unless you're a pro. So that being given, what if I told you that? And the problem is that if the banks are part of this, If the banks are in on it, where do you put your savings? Because you're not only not getting an interest rate, you're literally giving your money to the guys that might break the next system. Okay. What if I told you there was an industry that during the Great Depression, when the banks failed because they were so... Glass-Steagall wasn't there like it isn't today. But this industry doesn't loan money out. It doesn't leverage money. When you put money into your retirement account in the industries that we use and you put $100 into one of these savings type accounts, they have to show that they have $106 in hard assets on the books. Those hard assets have to be large, large, safest level government and corporate bonds. Now, granted, we could have a bond failure and a government failure in this this country. It's another show to talk about. Um, If the United States fails on its debt and doesn't pay its debt, first of all, where do you think your stocks were about two months before that happened? When the rumors already got out, what do you think that did to the stock market? You know, if that gets out and they can't help the banks out, what do you think is going to happen to the banking system? So this is like that, that is the last bastion, which is the full faith and credit of the United States government. And and even if you had a bond portfolio where you had some government bonds fail, something tells me Microsoft is still going to be around selling software that they may well still be able to pay their bonds. So that's where these accounts have to be held. And there's a number of ways they're leveraged, but there's two number of ways that they're protected. But there's two main guarantees to all of these accounts. One is, I don't care what's going on in these markets. We're going to guarantee growth. And until you pull the lever and you take that money out, that growth will typically be based somewhere between 6 to 8% compounded rates. This is a pension-type concept. And when you finally do pull the money out and you start to draw on it, if you live a long life and that account has been drawn down to zero and there is no more interest or principal left in the account, but you're alive, our insurers are going to back those accounts and still pay you that check month after month for the rest of your life. That is an alternative. And we get, we get people that don't have enough in their portfolio and they call in and they say, well, you know, I think I should be doing something like this because I got to know I'm getting some growth. And I don't know what happened. And we get very wealthy people who say, you know what? I want to take some off the table, put it into something like this, where I know my bills will be paid, where I can invest with a free heart. And I don't have to worry about when I need the money because the investments, if they're down, I'll let them ride. That's the alternative solution that we're doing. And the way that you get that is you get that by ordering a retirement roadmap because the retirement roadmap is the bigger strategic picture It looks at your current situation and says, if you were to try to do this on what you have, what will your retirement look like in retirement and through retirement? But then if we guarantee it, if we put these guarantees to it, what will it look like? Now, I've said this before. There's a lot of companies right now that are offering these sort of income planning scenarios. fact, they've really gotten smart to it because they realize that the tide is turning for the baby boomers and they're coming out of an accumulation phase to a distribution phase. So I don't know, Fidelity, there's just some of these companies and stuff. And I know they're offering this type of study. However, this is the difference. Those studies are still based on hypothetical returns. They're still based on something you've got to pick out of what you think your stocks will do, what you think the markets will do. And you don't know. You can't know what they're going to do. So when we do that type of study, it's based on what can we guarantee from the safest institutions that didn't go down in the Great Depression or skip a beat. That's what we're looking at. And that's how we build it. And what's the number? And that
1: retirement roadmap, you get it. And remember, this is a $1,500 financial service being provided to you uh, at no charge by a Straight Talk Wealth Advisor who's in your area, part of the the National Straight Talk Wealth Advisor Network. And that number's 888-882-5578. That's toll-free, 888-882-5578. And uh, don't forget to check out the website, Wealth. Dot com. Bruce, can they can they get in touch with the uh, the network on the website as well?
2: Uh, yeah, we're gonna we don't have a map up yet, but we will eventually have a map right, so, of where so you number. can find your local person. But if you uh, register on the website for retirement roadmap, we'll take that in. we'll get that to the local advisor. Um, and uh, we got a lot more coming, Bruce. This is
1: this has been an incredible, very incredible hour and twenty five minutes. We've done. And it's been a lot of fun. So, you know, I hope everybody enjoyed this extended podcast and look forward to it every week. I
2: love a podcast.
1: It's, it's great. Uh, iTunes, uh, register for Straight Talk Wealth Radio uh, to get all the future live shows and the extended podcast.
2: And let's, we'll eventually have a directory of where we're broadcasting locally. So take care, you guys. I love you all, and we'll talk to you again soon.